0: welcome to the outcomes rocket podcast where we inspire collaborative thinking improved outcomes and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers and now your host Saul marquez outcomes rocket listeners welcome back once again to the outcomes rocket podcast where we chat with today's most inspiring and successful healthcare leaders I wanna really thank you for tuning in again and I invite you to go to outcomesrocket.com slash reviews where you could give us a rating and review. I really enjoy hearing from our listeners and just hearing the feedback as well as things that you enjoyed or want us to do better. It's just what makes the show better and what makes us give you those tidbits of information to help improve outcomes in whatever area of healthcare that you're in. So without further ado, I wanna introduce our outstanding guest. His name is Dr. Adam Probst. He's a director of human factors, clinical operations at Baylor Scott and White Health. He has an incredible amount of experience in the area of human behaviors in healthcare, and he utilizes innovative methods and approaches grounded in human factors and systems engineering framework to create a robust healthcare work stream that helps see outcomes improve. I wanna welcome Adam to the show and also want to thank Dr. Ballard for the introduction to this amazing gentleman that's doing so much for healthcare. So Adam, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. appreciate the opportunity.
0: Absolutely. And so Adam, let us know, what is it that got you to decide to get into the medical sector to begin with?
1: I somewhat grew up around it, you could say. My father was a, a PCP. Growing up, he and I—I you know, I, I was really involved in his clinics. Really, really enjoyed the concept of being able to help people, and you know, naturally wanted to follow in his footsteps. Growing as I matured, I remember going—you know—he would introduce me to healthcare by uh, we would watch—you know—surgery videos that he would bring home. That you know, he was having me memorize anatomy and different functions of the body when I was in fifth and sixth grade. Wow. Um, you know, just to kind of help me get prepared. So I was always really, really interested in the field. Unfortunately, he and I were in a, an auto accident when I was fourteen, and he was oh my goodness uh, killed. Yeah, he didn't oh, survive. But
0: one I'm of the so things sorry. that really
1: well, thank you. Yeah, um, one of the things that really kept me interested is you know I was pretty severely injured in there, and and uh, over the years I've had about sixteen surgeries, orthopedic, you know, fusing <laughs> joint things, and so I've always stayed really involved in healthcare. Um, and but I became really close with the orthopedic surgeon that has performed most of those surgeries for me, and it began to kind of shift and say, well, maybe I would want to go from kind of a primary care role into more of a specialized field, perhaps orthopedics. So I I joined his office as a medical assistant throughout most of high school. And in the first few uh, years, of my undergrad at Texas Tech, got to kind of see the behind the scenes working. He would take me into the ORs with him. I got to see a lot of procedures, a lot of hands-on things. And so I got to stay pretty involved throughout healthcare. So my passion kind of, yeah, I had a lot of really great mentors that worked in the field that kind of took me under their wing and were happy to kind of show me how healthcare actually operated and how you can actually interact with patients. But my junior year at Texas Tech, I met just through a happenstance, taking an elective as a part of my undergrad curriculum. I met a professor, Dr. Keith Jones there, who was a human factors engineer. And he was one of the, at the time it was a pretty small program at Texas Tech, a human factors program there. But I was really intrigued by the field. It sounded really interesting. I was kind of just looking for some stuff to do. And so I was asked and granted permission to join his lab as an undergrad research assistant, and he did a lot of his work in robotics and human-computer interaction. So I got to kind of see the field from that inside perspective, from human factors, learn more about it. I, had, Like most people had never really heard about it, a field that's been around since World War II, but very few people are really familiar with it, and got a lot of really great research experience with him. But I, throughout that whole process, I really began to see that I thought human factors could be applied to healthcare. Um, a lot of the same principles, you know, human behavior, reliability. Increasing safety and processes and, and, and that sort of thing. I was like, this is a perfect marriage with healthcare. But at that time, and this was you know in the early odds, right around
0: 2000-2002,
1: there really weren't any applied healthcare human factors mm-hmm. folks do, working. There were some that were working in, in research capacities, that's maybe affiliated with some medical schools or you know Hopkins, for example. But there was no really applied human factors. It was all kind of academic type approaches. So you know, I decided that yep, yeah, human factors is a field for me. I think this would apply to healthcare. I wasn't really sure how that would work or, or what that would lead to. But when I started my doctoral program, I was partnered with uh, my graduate advisor. Came from the field of judgment decision making, and she specialized in, in medical decision making particularly. And so throughout graduate school, I got a lot of really good experience helping to design some patient decision aids and you know for. Making cancer to treatment decisions, how do we help patients understand the difference between you know specificity and sensitivity of treatment mm. options, you know some of those kind of more abstract concepts. So that was kind of really the only thing that was going that I could find in, in healthcare human factors. But I had the opportunity to intern at NASA at the Johnson Space Center, where I worked in a, a division they call the UTEF. It's a usability testing and analysis facility, but they had one of their human factors engineers there who was really, really interested in working with the crew medical officers and trying to design some tablet-based tools for them to use to treat injuries. If an astronaut gets injured and running from a cut to a life-threatening injury in microgravity. So I got to do some really neat research with her, kind of figuring out, well, how can we provide tools at the time of care in one of those really unique settings such as microgravity. But after I finished my internship, I was lucky enough where a hospitalist from Children's Mercy Health System in Kansas City. One of those physicians that was, you know, really passionate about safety and healthcare and learned about human factors and wanted to know more about it. And you know, at Wichita State we were kind of the closest program to his his hospital system. So he reached out to my advisors, kind of a natural fit. She was the only one doing research in healthcare um, as far as human factors. And so he and I began to partner and collaborate on a few different research projects, it kind of led to my dissertation, which was applying medical decision-making and and kind of choice architecture and things to optimize ordering practices of physicians. We kind of focused on laboratory ordering for a few of their more recent or their more uh, common, like febrile illness or failure to thrive, some of their more common diagnoses they were getting. So this was when EHRs were just kind of rolling out and people were trying to figure out how to use them. They didn't Mm -hmm. know how to design them. Most of them, and many of them still are, not necessarily designed in what you would call high functioning or, or even have great usability. And so luckily, as I was winding down that dissertation work, uh, Keith Jones, a professor at Texas Tech that kind of started all this, he, he's one of my first mentors. And he and I still stay in touch. sent me an email and said, hey, uh, I know you want to get back to Dallas. I'm you know, from Lubbock in the West Texas area. He goes, I want you to come back to Texas like all good little native Texans want to do. But he goes, there's a, a health system there at the time was Legacy Baylor Health System. He goes, they're starting a human factors program and they want somebody who can do some applied human factors work. And it was just the perfect opportunity that I was looking for. And I, I jumped on it, you know, applied and, and luckily was hired. And and over the last seven years that I've been at uh, what is now Baylor Scott and White, have kind of worked in this director position that is 100 percent applied human factors in healthcare. I do do some research on the side and try to publish when I can. But for the most part, you know, I get to follow my passion, which is being out with the providers, out with the clinicians on the units. You know, I I just got back from a two-day trip to our Austin area hospitals um, working on some of the OR and sterile processing work. And so I get to really be out there and get my hands dirty, so to speak. And so, you know, I kind of throughout my whole life has really been interested in healthcare. And then as I Came passionate about human factors. And then luckily this one position opened up here that it, it was just the absolute perfect opportunity for me.
0: Adam, that is so interesting. And your journey is amazing. It started early with your dad, then it led to the unfortunate accident, but yet you still through that time found a way to stay focused and your heart stayed there and you were taken in under the wings of many different leaders. Listeners, you are the average of your five closest peers. So the people that you surround yourself will determine your future and what you do. And Adam, you surrounded yourself with some amazing leaders that helped you pave a way into a really unique niche, human factors and healthcare. And now you're sort of leading the way. So congratulations, an amazing story. I really appreciate you sharing that with us.
1: No, thank you. Yes. Yeah they're without a doubt, those other leaders that are, you know, took the time out of their busy schedules to, you know, help a kid that really wasn't sure what he wanted to do like many of us um, as we try to grow up and get a little bit older and more mature. But each one of them left a very big impact and each one grew me in different ways. And Yan Chao, who is now no longer with Baylor Scott & White, but he was really one of the first human factors in healthcare. He, he worked at the University of Maryland as a tenured professor in their anesthesiology department doing both research and some applied projects. But he began kind of the groundwork here at Baylor Scott & White uh, for human factors. And he did such a, a great job that they said, hey, we want to hire another full-time, you know, PhD to come in and try to work on applied stuff. And so, you know, he was a, he left a great mark on me in terms of how to actually bridge the gap going from graduate school to actually, how do you take some of that stuff you've learned and that work in everyday life. And so each one of those leaders has, has made a huge impact on me. I've, I've been very blessed to have some great mentors throughout the, the journey. So hopefully I can provide that to other folks as they're coming up as
0: well. Now, uh, A true blessing, Adam. And, uh, you know, I think it's uh, it's an Wonderful opportunity that you have in your hands. Can you give the listeners an example of how you guys have created better outcomes with what you're doing there?
1: Yeah, happy to. There's luckily or unlikely, however you would like to to phrase it. You know, there's a lot of opportunity in healthcare, right? A lot of different things to focus on. One of the the things that Human Factors brings to healthcare, and you know, I get a lot of questions that aren't you guys very similar to lean and doing a lot of Six Sigma type work? And there is quite a bit of overlap. We're trained a little bit differently, but human factors, you know, where lean is looking at waste and and removal of that and definitely has a huge part to play in in healthcare as it continues to try to shrink and become more efficient and cost effective. But human factors really focuses on what you would call the people side of that. So it's kind of a a blending of several different fields where it's what you would call the empirical side of psychology, like your cognition, perception, decision-making, motor control, basically how we interact with the world around us, what people are good at, what they're bad at. And it applies that with industrial and systems engineering and design. So it gives us a lot of opportunity to kind of say, okay, we know what people can do well, just naturally. And we know what people just struggle with just from our own cognitive and information processing capabilities. And so how can we help design systems to make them safer? And one of the key tenets that we really, really look at is what we call the work system. You know, a lot of different fields have similar concepts and similar names, but in human factors, especially in healthcare, when we talk about the work system that we try to focus on to drive some of these outcomes is really the intersection of, you know, the people, the technology, the processes. Sometimes it's our own policies and procedures that we hamstring ourselves with. So by looking at that work system, we're able to kind of Get the whole picture, if you will, which I think leads to a lot more sustained improvements. And I'll give you kind of an example. One of the a project I'm really, really proud of is a nursing uh, leader at one of our facilities is doing very engaged, rounded with frontline staff constantly, kind of very. How much had an open door policy to to get some of her nurses in there to say, Hey, we're really struggling with this, or I have an idea I'd like to work on. But this particular facility was a thousand bed facility. It's one of our flagship. Facilities, very, very large, very, very busy, very high acute patients is an easy way of saying that, right? But while during rounding, the, this nurse brought up to the, the chief nursing officer there that we're not happy. We're overloaded. We're working too hard. We're making errors just because we're trying to do too much. And none of that would probably be any earth shattering news to your listeners or anyone who works in healthcare, right? But the CNO began to really dig into it and looked, you know, as all good leaders do, began to kind of really get our hands around and figure out what was going on there and what are some of the errors we think are attributable to this overload of the work system. So what they found is that despite maintaining a constant ratio of, you know, one to five in a med surge unit, for example, or a one to two in an ICU, the nurses, you know, national database of, you know, nursing quality indicators, the Indian QI scores were really falling and then our error rates hadn't really been improved. By throwing, you know, every technology we can, at it, we had EHRs, we had barcode med scanning, we had all the, the stuff you're supposed to have, but we were still having these these kind of errors. And so, the CNO who I'd worked with on a few projects previously, called me up one day out of the blue and just said, you know, I think this is something human factors can work with to both increase our, our staff satisfaction, but more importantly, to reduce their workload and allow them to have a better working environment and also, more importantly, make Patient safety and, and drive some of our outcomes, and so that kind of kicked off what eventually became over a year-long project that one of the nurses ended up kind of dubbing "Project Sanity," which I, I'm not very—I don't have a marketing brain, so I had some kind of nebulous human factors terms, and she said, "Let's just call it Project Sanity." But
0: <laughs> you got to give, give it a it fun name, break. right? <laughs> yeah,
1: every, everybody likes to resonate with those yeah, great names, and yeah. so we really began to apply some human factors methods to really understand that clinical work system. A lot of that's done via observation. I. I'm a firm believer um just because of how busy everyone is that we we really don't have the time or we don't make the time to go out and just watch what our healthcare workers and staff and from any level are actually being forced to work in and what they're trying to to accomplish. And so we really began to focus on you know what are some aspects of their broken work system we think could really drive some improvements at that particular unit. So we had a few pilot units we were working with and start began running through a series of PDCA cycle improvements that we really completely redesigned almost the entire work system our nurses were, were operating in. You know, everything from how we were managing supplies and storing them, how do we reduce and mitigate a lot of these interruptions that we know are leading to errors, how can we streamline and improve our medication administration process, and even how we're even educating our patients on their care. And so we kind of had several interventions we began focusing on, looking primarily at the med prep workflow um, and administration, um, supply management and work efficiencies. And, but one of the big ones was, you know, how can we really in today's climate where everybody is literally a touch screen away from being interrupted or, you know, how can we really begin to understand and mitigate some of those interruptions? And so throughout what a year long cycle, we went through several different iterations of this and we actually ended up, we calculated that we saved about 250 minutes per nurse per shift in the wow. ICU and 160 minutes per nurse per shift in the med surge. That's um, huge. And, and it, yeah, it was you know giving them actually time back to do what they're trained to do and what they like to do and what they have a passion for, which is treating patients and being with patients. And we did that all through the redesign of the work system. We didn't add a single FTE. We didn't hire more nurses. We didn't hire more patient care techs. So that was neat. But one of the really cool things, that we found out after we had implemented this, we went back a year later and said, let's go look at our, our nurse reported medication errors and see if we have an impact on any of those. And so the ICU unit fell from, you know, we, we did a year before the interventions and then a year after the interventions. So we went back and looked and the ICU fell from 11 events to zero for wow. medi- nurse reported med errors. And then the, the med surg unit went from 52 events to 12
0: Amazing. Um, and so,
1: yeah, and we we actually, you know, thanks to all the great literature out there, you can pretty easily calculate what the estimated adverse drug event costs. and we we estimated that that saved that particular facility about five hundred thousand dollars a year. So,
0: you know, we went
1: further. Yeah, it was great, and we we went a little bit further and said, okay, well, what are you know, how can we better quantify not only from the nurse reported error rate, but how can we better quantify what are we doing for our nurses' actual workflows and workloads? And one of the facilities we've done this on had a nurse tracking system, and we were able to use that and tap into that data. And basically, as an example, they were running back and forth to two different medication rooms. They were stocked differently, which led to a lot of interruptions or partial med administration. They would start passing meds and go, I forgot to grab this, and then they'd have to go back and you know, a lot of walking around and a lot of uh, wasted time and potential opportunities for error, because as you're walking around, you get distracted, more interruptions, lose where you were in the workflow, for example. And we were able just through redesigning the way that we managed their interruptions and supplies and the way we streamlined the med prep process where we were able to reduce their recurring visits to the medication rooms by over 30%. And so, you know, they actually, we calculated to spend about 1.1 hours less every day walking around trying to find and administer medication. And so Mm -hmm. we really said, okay, well, how do we get this out to the masses, right? It's great to do this on a few pilot units. How do we really diffuse this? We're really big on, on diffusing some of these practices, obviously. So while that was really a successful project, you know, Baylor has a really great quality improvement summit that they do every year. It's called the Bill Aston Quality Improvement Summit. And and what it is, it's designed for projects like this. It can be done by anyone. You have a very formalized PDCA cycle and you have to have your data in a certain way. It's a very structured process, but it celebrates some of these outcomes and things. And so we use that as a platform to kind of get the word out. We applied and we won first place that year. Um, So thank you. Thank you. And so that got a lot of other facilities interested in doing that type of work. And so, you know, we ended up publishing this work in in Journal of Nursing Administration and then began to kind of spread it. And as we went from, you know, beyond the ICUs and the med surge units, we went into, you know, cub units and oncology units and labor and delivery units, orthopedic units. And so we've kind of created a standardized toolkit now. And I actually had a meeting early yesterday morning with the nursing director uh, in our Central Texas division when I was down in the Austin area, who had heard about the work and said, "Hey, can we meet for breakfast while you're here?" And I said, like, oh, "I'd love to." And so I was able to hand over a toolkit that says, "Okay, here's our processes. Here's your data collection methodology. Here's, you know, how we recommend you you kind of frame this work out. The type of people you're going to need on your team. All that, you know, multidisciplinary approach." And so I was able to just hand over this toolkit, and now she can take it and run with it and implement it there because there's one of me in a system of forty-five thousand employees, and so being able to find ways to, to drive these outcomes through kind of this diffusion mechanism is really critical as part of what we do. And so basically that project started off with the CNO, a good leader who was engaged and actively listened and was concerned and didn't just kind of have the checkbox of, okay, I gotta do my rounding today, but literally listened to and then thought, hey, you know, I think chemo factors and can really, really help with this and started on a, a way of just trying to focus on how can we make the nurses work life easier which obviously is really, really important because we want them focusing on patient care and not on, oh, I have to spend a third of my time documenting the EHR. But, you know, we found a lot of really great reduced med errors, you know, patient satisfaction scores went way up, reduced time spent wasted in walking around. And so it had a lot of really, really great outcomes, all because of a, a leader who said, yep, I think I can help you with that and then use some system resources. One of the benefits of being such a large health system is we have a lot of really great people doing really neat work and so we could tap into those and so that's that's one of my my favorite examples of of that's how human excellent. factors has been applied yeah and, and by looking at that clinical work system you know how can we really redesign it and reduce error and make things more cost effective which is we know healthcare has to do moving forward
0: Adam that's so great appreciate you sharing that amazing story and it's such a great thing that you were able to create a toolkit to disseminate to diffuse to just scale it out and congratulations Thank you. One of the things that I wanted to ask you is you've had success. Give us an example of a setback that you had and what you learned from that setback.
1: Oh, yes. I did put some, some thought into this one. And it was, this was very early on in my career here at Baylor. It was one of those things as nursing leaders and physician leaders throughout the system, we kind of became aware that, okay, we have this human factors program. We're not really sure what they do yet, but we think we have some different projects we might want them to work on. And one of the nursing leaders at a facility really wanted to work on the redesign of their crash carts. Uh, they wanted to make it more usable, less searching time. How can we design the way that... Cause we keep, we we're we buying the cards, we can't change the cards, but how can we stock the cards differently and that sort of thing to make it more accessible and, and a little bit faster. So Sue Hallbeck, who's now at Mayo, but at the time was at in Nebraska, um, had done a project like this and, and I know her professionally and reached out to her and he said, can you give me some lessons learned? on what you did. And she had a lot of really great work on some ideas on how they redesigned the cross cart. But what I learned and where this failed is I took that and ran with it, but did not have the time, or I did not take the time, I should say, to make sure I had a really engaged team. It was one of those things that the nursing leader was, yeah, we want human factors to help with this. And so I, I took that and thought it was a great idea from my standpoint, it made perfect sense on you know, just my training in terms of human error and that sort of thing. But did not have the time to get the frontline buy-in. Did not have the time to make sure that what can I do for you that works. Yeah, from a human factor standpoint, this may make perfect sense, but it does not fit your workflow. It does not fit your expectations, and so basically that project went nowhere. <laughs> I spent a lot of time on it. It was really frustrating for me, Hummer. but it was a really good learning opportunity. Yeah. And so I, I learned from that that man, you've really you know, especially in today's world everyone's running from the new flavor of the month to the flavor of the month. You know, we're going to reduce falls. Now we're going to turn our, addition, our attention to you know, happy reduction or whatever it may be. But I didn't build the team needed and get the engagement needed and get their insight early on enough in the project. So when I came back with my recommendations, they were like, okay, this isn't going to work for us. It may work on this one unit you worked with, but it's not going to work on the ICUs, for example. So with a system as large as we are, you've got to have that both a project steering type team for our big initiatives but you've got to really have those those implementation folks because one of the things i learned from ian one of the a really good mentor that i mentioned earlier is that especially in patient safety and trying to reduce this is that at least us those of us at the corporate level don't own the processes the frontline staff do the ones that are actually treating the patients and using the equipment we're buying for them and asking them to use so without having that kind of proactive approach to really understand what is a problem they're trying to solve. Someone can come through it it sounds great around a conference room table to say, yeah, we want to make our, we want to design our crash carts and have a standard layout for every crash cart across the system so if we have floating nurses or whomever, they're all the same. That sounds great around a conference room, but when you actually go out and try to figure out how to implement that and diffuse it, if you do not get the right folks engaged and you do not take their perspectives into account early enough on, and have a ability to kind of not only just keep them engaged, but how do you diffuse some of the work we're going to do? Then it's just not going to go anywhere, and so you waste, you kind of spin your wheels quite a bit. And so that's why. Luckily, I learned that lesson early on, and since then, you know, sometimes I do think that you know it'd be nice to move things a little bit more quickly in terms of yeah, let's have this problem, we're going to run with it, and we're going to fix it in a couple of weeks, and then move on to the next. It does take more time to get those folks engaged and involved and build a team that is going to own the process, because once I'm done, I leave, and then they're kind of stuck what's left, whatever the deliverable was for that particular project. And so luckily I learned that early on and I, I've applied it. It takes a little bit longer sometimes than I think we would like, but without those kind of engagement, and without that kind of multidisciplinary approach and looking at the true work system, uh, we're just not going to be able to drive any improvement going forward because it's just going to move on and then whatever the next target is, whatever the next project they want to work on is, will take precedence and then it just kind of goes away into the
0: into the ether. Very, very real advice there, Adam, and a great lesson to learn. We all face this, uh, listeners, there will always be a flavor of the month, like Adam said. And if we don't do the work to get the front line engaged, to get their buy-in, to give us feedback, and to make give them ownership in the process, then the outcome's not going to be there. So make sure you learn from this lesson that Adam shared. Adam, thanks so much for sharing that. Yes,
1: thank you. Happy to. It was a painful lesson, but a good lesson.
0: But you learned it early on, and, and it's a good thing. So I uh, love that. Let's pretend, Adam, that you and I are building a medical leadership course on what it takes <laughs> to be successful in medicine today the 101 course or the ABCs of Dr. Adam Probst. And we're going to write out the syllabus here with this lightning round. So we'll get some quick responses to these four questions, and then we'll finish it up with a book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? I'm ready. Awesome. What is the best way to improve healthcare outcomes?
1: Well, I am biased, uh, obviously, but I truly believe, you know, with with as complex as healthcare has become, with all the integration of technology, um, you know, we keep throwing technology at the problem and wondering why our costs aren't going down and why our outcomes aren't improving. Is that healthcare leaders really, really need to understand how do we deliver care in the framework of this clinical and work system that I've been mentioning throughout the whole time? how all of this comes to go, how all the technology comes together, what people, behaviors will do, you know, culture change, all that stuff. If we don't understand the clinical work system, and and it sounds like a very nebulous topic, but it's really not. So you know if we're really going to hit the goal to have zero harms for our patients, the really only true way to do that is to, to understand not by sitting around and asking people around a conference table, but going out and seeing and learning how healthcare is actually delivered. And so by using that through the the lens of a work system approach that human factors can provide you're going to identify those barriers that staff face. You're going to figure out what are our big challenges, what are our, our low-hanging fruits versus things that are going to take a huge year-long process. And so, you know, human factors can help with that. But you know, I think Jim Collins has a really, really great book. And, and this isn't the book I, I'm necessarily recommending. We'll get to that, I know. But that gives leaders a kind of a key mechanism to achieve that is right. So his good to great book is get the right people on the bus and then decide where to take it. And so I think future healthcare leaders that we've got to approach things from a, multidisciplinary approach. Everything's tied into each other nowadays. The work system is very, very complex. We're not getting any more FTEs. We're not gonna just be able to throw staff and money at the problem. We've gotta improve the, the way our healthcare is delivered. And so by understanding how all that intersects together, I think is a it would be a step number one in really understanding how to drive outcomes for healthcare
0: leaders moving forward. Adam, what's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? I think,
1: and I see this a lot since I'm at the corporate level, but I often think we fail by really not clearly communicating our system goals and how specifically individual units and offices and departments really dock into those efforts. For example, you know, I found that, you know, frontline staff will typically know obviously, you know, what the general goals of their facilities. Like this, you know, we were going to reduce our falls by X percent or drop our classy rates or increase our HCAP scores. But, you know, if you really sit and talk to a frontline nurse who knows what her unit goals are, but say, you know, what are you doing and how can you dock into that that will help drive and achieve the goals that the system corporate and other healthcare leaders have done, they often don't, they can't articulate that well. You know, I don't want a patient to fall. Okay, that's great. We obviously don't want patients to fall, but what can we do with you and how can we give you the tools you need in order to make sure that that doesn't happen? And so, you know, I I always kind of use that flavor of the month example. But we push those so often upon our frontline staff that it's really nebulous as to how they can really make a difference and when what they can contribute on a day-to-day basis to actually help us hit our goals. And so, yeah, I think as healthcare leaders, our job is to not only really set the goals for our system, but really ensure that the goals have a clear pathway forward and to have each staff member understand that everyone plays a role in this, from a you know an EBS person to a you know senior VP of you know how, what can they do that applies and, and how what are some realistic and measurable differences and actual work that they can do to help us achieve those goals i think we often fall flat on not articulating clearly enough how individual staff fit into the overarching system goals and performance though
0: it's a great call out adam how do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change
1: it is a definitely a huge challenge that everyone is facing i think continuous quality improvement is obviously going to be required to kind of continue to excel especially with as healthcare leaders try to set a path for the, the future, not really even knowing for sure what that future is going to be because, you know, changes in DC and this, we're going to have this type of healthcare coverage, we're not, we're going to change, you know. So being able to really have that continuous quality improvement mechanism, we have a really great way of doing that here at Baylor, Scott & White. We have what we call the, the Steep Global Institute. Our, our pillars are to provide, you know, safe, timely, efficient, equitable patient-centered care. So we have a mechanism done that where people are given the tools and through a kind of a class type environment to, to complete a pride projects and say, okay, here's really how you're going to understand and map out workflows. Here's how you develop a charter. Here's how you develop goals and aim statements and that sort of thing. But it gives them, uh, it follows a very PDCA rapid cycle improvement, but it's training everyone from healthcare leaders that were required to take it from the director level and above here at Baylor or frontline staff who want who are maybe working on a capstone project, they want to make improvements. So giving them the tools and the ability to say, okay, here's some general structure around which you can do continuous quality improvement quickly, but then kind of teaching them and then turning them loose and letting them go and actually make a difference. I think that's being able to have that mechanism to teach, train your staff and to give them the tools to let them do those quality improvement initiatives is the only real way, I think, to keep that sustainment and stay relevant going.
0: What's the one area of focus that should drive all else in your organization?
1: For us, and I think a lot of health, you know, everyone likes to say we've always put our patients first. Obviously, that's why many of us are in healthcare. We, we want to make a difference in people's lives. We want to help people. But I think, you know, particularly healthcare leaders is really, really focusing not only just on patient experience, which is so important now because reimbursement tied to HCAP scores and all of that but really just understanding and putting names to the faces of why we're really, really doing this. Yes, we all have a career. Yes, we all have to make our ends meet financially, and so we all have to have a job of some sort, but we're really here to make a difference for people that we see in the, at their worst, right? And who are, nobody wants to go to a hospital, nobody wants right. to be there. So, you know, really keeping that as a center, and we've done that a lot through, actually just sometimes it's as simple as putting a face with a problem as, you know, hey, we're having this issue on oversedation. Well here's a patient that, that had a negative outcome of that. And this is who this patient was. They had family, they had friends, they had goals and aspirations that they wanted to do. And so I think keeping that centered and, and making that a priority, and sometimes it seems kind of you know, almost colloquial or sometimes even cheesy or rah-rah to say, yeah, we want to put our patients first, but I think we you've really got to make sure and not get stuck in the, the day-to-day of that we so often fall into of just, yeah, it's a job, I'm doing it, but the patients truly are the focus for what we need to be working on. And the only way to really provide them the care that not only we want to give, but that they deserve is to make sure that they stay at the center of every decision made.
0: I love it, Adam. What book would you recommend to the listeners as part of the series?
1: Yeah, one of my favorite books is Stephen Casey. He has a, a book called Set Phasers on Stun and Other True Tales of Design, Technology, and Human Error. Interesting. Um, it, it's a little bit of an old book. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of one of the – he's put out some you know, different edited versions and more updated versions through the years. But it was really one of the first books I read that was in Keith Jones and others actually recommended it to me when I became interested in the field of human factors. It's basically a collection – of disasters that occur that when designers don't take the user into consideration. You know, he uses a lot of airplane crashes, but obviously there's healthcare examples in there. Um, just due to the way we're designing the equipment and machines that they kind of we're asking folks to use. And it really highlights what I think is a critical really understanding in order to drive outcomes in safety is to understand the difference between use error and user error. Everybody like you know, a lot of systems have moved to, you know, a fair and consistent culture type approach where we don't want to point fingers. We want to help everyone. We understand what was the processes that broke down and all that. But we often sometimes we call it, well, that person, should, they should have paid more attention. How could you get the wrong drug? How could you do that kind of stuff? And so this is a really good framework of helping people shift that oftentimes people are just a, a result of, of the equipment and technology they're being asked to use. So great it does a up. really good job highlighting that. Yeah, I would recommend that to the listeners for sure. It's a fun read. I mean, not fun as in funny haha, but it's very intriguing and interesting. And I think provides a really unique perspective on, on how leaders can help drive healthcare by really focusing on, we've got to take usability and users and everything into account on the technology we're asking our patients, to, our healthcare staff to use.
0: No, this is really great, Adam. And, and listeners, an amazing syllabus we just put together here for you all and a great book. You don't have to write any of this down. Just go to outcomesrocket.com slash Adam P. That's A-D-A-M-P as in Peter, or P as in Probst. And you'll be able to find all the show notes, links to the Baylor, Scott & White, all the books that we just talked about, and just the projects that Adam's up to. Go to outcomesrocket.com slash Adam P. You'll be able to find that there. Adam, before we conclude, can you share one closing thought and where the listeners could get a hold of you
1: they can get a hold of me through um our steep global institute as part of baylor scott and white health we've actually done a lot of collaboration and almost really consulting type work with with systems that may not have uh, human factors personnel available but you can get that through um, the my baylor scott and white website and then i have a linkedin profile please feel free to adam p-r-o-b-s-t uh, feel free to reach out to me there. always eager to, to learn and collaborate from other healthcare leaders and you know, yeah, a closing thought, you know, is, is that, and I'll keep it brief. But human factors in healthcare is now much, much more common than it was even five years ago, ten years ago. I think a good example of that is, you know, there's a National Human Factors and Ergonomics Association that, in society that puts on a yearly conference for a lot of people working in at Google and aviation and healthcare. But there's so much healthcare now that it has now a specific healthcare focus conference that it does on a three-day, once a year. And so I think, you know, as healthcare leaders moving forward really want to make a difference is that it doesn't have to be human factors necessarily, but really understanding that the work system we're giving our staff and what we're asking them to do is broken. And then we wonder why we still have these safety events and we have these never events and all this that happen. And it's because we've designed mm-hmm. the work system in a way that is just, it's no longer feasible. I, someone mentioned that, oh, healthcare is broken. Well, healthcare is not, healthcare is working the way it was designed to work. It's just, it was not totally. designed. Well, and so I think leaders moving forward by understanding this work system approach and, you know, we now have to look at it. this stuff from a holistic, almost 30,000 foot view of understanding where all of this stuff comes together and that the only way to really drive improvement is not to point fingers at staff and say you should have paid more attention or to hire more staff necessarily, but is to really redesign and restructure the work system uh, in which we're asking staff to provide care.
0: I love it, Adam. Well, listen, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. You know, healthcare isn't broken. It's working the way it was designed to work. and. I encourage the listeners to take some words of wisdom from Dr. Probst here and think about how you could involve this idea of human factors in the way that you improve outcomes in your facility and how you design your equipment or drugs to improve outcomes. Adam, I just want to thank you once again for taking the time to join us and really looking forward to uh to staying in touch
1: yes thank you for the opportunity it was great i i I really enjoy the podcast and I, i love all the i love this is a great mechanism to try to bring healthcare leaders together to look at you know how can we fix this this broken work system from a number of different ways so thank you for what you're doing
0: thanks for listening to the outcomes rocket podcast